from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, Murder Fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday, we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. And I want to give a quick thanks to my patrons for their support and everyone else listening. I've had such excellent feedback on these videos that I'm actually trying to save up to get a good quality camera and some lighting and things to make this a little better. So today's podcast will be on Nathaniel White. Nathaniel was born on July 26, 1960, so let's get into some history for that time. In the United Kingdom, a hundred thousand people joined the quote, ban the bomb rally in London. The United States launched Tiros 1, launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. It was the first weather satellite and one of the world's first successful ones at that. In Northern Ireland, the Irish Republican Army began its fight against the British. The American Heart Association linked smoking to heart disease and death in middle-aged men. In Cuba, Fidel Castro nationalized American oil, sugar, and other U.S. interests. Sri Lanka was ahead of its time when it elected the world's first female prime minister. 1960 was also the year that Kentucky-born Cassius Clay, otherwise known as Muhammad Ali, won his first professional fight after winning the gold medal in the Olympics in Rome. Several countries won their independence from France, and South Africa gained its independence from the Commonwealth. On television in the UK, the show Coronation Street premiered as well as the Flintstones in the United States. And it's no wonder, because over 100 million television sets were inside homes worldwide by this point. Some notable people born this year were Antonio Banderas, Hugh Grant, and Bono from the band U2. So this was the atmosphere that Nathaniel was born into. Now guys, there's little to no information about Nathaniel's childhood. The only thing I could find was a statement from Nathaniel himself. He said that his family moved to Poughkeepsie, which is where he spent his teen years. That's in New York. He also said that both of his parents were factory workers and that he had had a good relationship with both of them. A man who had lived down the block from White during high school said that Nathaniel was always bragging about his way with women, his sexual prowess, if you will, but the man said that it was all just boasting. 
In fact, Nathaniel was most often rejected by other girls. Once he graduated from high school in 1979, he went on to join the army. So again, there just really isn't anything I can go on for any childhood history of behavioral problems, possible bullying by other peers, um, abuse, neglect, family history. There's nothing. We know he was discharged from the army in 1983, and then he moved to Maryland. So I couldn't find the exact year, but Nathaniel met a young, divorced mother named Jill at a bar in New York. Jill stated in an interview that one of her cousins had talked her into going out for a change because she rarely did anything beyond working and taking care of her two young daughters. Her cousin met someone at this establishment and walked off with that guy, leaving Jill by herself. This is when Jill said Nathaniel approached her. He offered to buy her a drink. So they started chatting, and she described him as shy but polite, well-dressed and attentive, which was something that she was not accustomed to. As people do, he asked her for her phone number, and she gave it to him. Now, because he was living in Maryland and her in New York, and due to this distance, they maintained a relationship by talking on the phone regularly, and he would drive up to visit her pretty much every weekend. Nathaniel and Jill dated for six months before they decided to take the next step. She allowed him to move in with her and her daughters. She felt that he was a good person and would be good to her and her children. But trouble began rather quickly after he made the move to Middletown, which is where Jill lived. It would become pretty apparent that Nathaniel had a hard time finding a job. As he became increasingly frustrated, it would, of course, cause tension in their relationship. And then one morning in 1987, there was a knock at the door. Nathaniel was then arrested at the house for robbing a local convenience store. His excuse to Jill was that he knew that they were hurting for money and he got desperate. He said that he was ashamed of himself. She stated in an interview with ID Discovery that she felt sympathy toward him, knowing that they had been having some financial difficulties, that he had indeed must have gotten desperate. So she forgave him and allowed him to return home after a couple of years in jail. Once he was out of jail, he was finally able to find a job and things began to look better. Then one day he came home with a present for Jill, which consisted of a skin-tight mini dress. He insisted that it was the fashion, which for the late 80s was kind of true in some cases, and became irritated if she hesitated wearing those dresses. He then had her wear them to the park on weekends when he participated in a local basketball league tournament type situation. He then had her wear them to the park on weekends when he participated in local basketball tournaments between the men of the neighborhood, only they of course would notice her sitting there. Because of how he had her dress, she simply stood out. Nathaniel became angry, blaming her for this new attention that she was getting. He said to her, quote, you're supposed to be paying attention to me. You don't know how to act, unquote. 
She described it as a jealous rage, and he broke her down until she complied by agreeing to not talk to any other people while they were at the park. Not long after this began, Nathaniel was accused by Jill's young teenage niece, Christine, of touching her inappropriately while Christine had been over to the couple's home to play with Jill's daughters. Jill's brother called after Christine got home and told her what Christine had said, so Jill confronted Nathaniel, who of course completely denied the accusation. Jill then asked her daughters about it, and they both said that, yes, they had all been playing and wrestling, but that nothing disingenuous had happened, so she believed him. Still, they were told Christine was not going to be allowed to come over for some time. Jill's brother said in an interview, quote, He always talked about women. He talked about the things he wanted to do to them, sexual things. He was constantly obsessed by it, unquote. And then he began staying out later and later, sometimes not getting home until as late as 10 p.m. He would say that he had been playing basketball, several games in a row, of course, and had lost track of time. He was constantly in a bad mood and he was drinking heavily. In 1990, Nathaniel was arrested again. He had offered a ride to a 16-year-old girl he saw at the convenience store and she had accepted. He then threatened her with either a razor or a knife, sources differed, but regardless, he was attempting to kidnap her. She managed to escape and get out of the car and run. She went straight to the police. While awaiting trial for that, as he had bailed out, this is when he would commit his first murder. In March of 1991, 29-year-old Juliana Frank, who was also three months pregnant, met Nathaniel in a bar. He talked her into leaving with him. Her naked body was found three days later, dumped on some abandoned railroad tracks. He had stabbed her at least 30 times in the neck and the chest. He then posed her body neatly as if she were laying in a coffin. There was not enough evidence to trace this murder back to him, of course, but he was then allowed to plead guilty to a misdemeanor charge regarding the 16-year-old girl and was sentenced to only nine months in jail. And again, Jill accepted him back once he was released in April of 1992. In May, Jill was waiting for her daughters to come home from school, only they didn't. She called the school to ask what was going on. She thought perhaps the buses were running late or broke down. The school told her to call Child Protective Services that her daughters would not be coming home. That was when she was told about sexual abuse allegations that her daughters had made against Nathaniel. Ultimately, the family court ordered him to stay away from Jill's daughters so she could have them back. However, for whatever reason, Jill did allow him back. On June 1st, only two months after being paroled, Jill's niece, the now 14-year-old Christine Klebb, went missing. Her father, Jill's brother, was frantic, and Jill, 
with Nathaniel at her side, assured her brother that they would join the search efforts. Nathaniel looked him dead in his eyes and told him he would do whatever it took to help find his daughter. Two months later, her body was found less than 10 miles away off of Echo Lake Road, badly decomposed and mostly buried. She had been raped and then beaten to death. On July 10th, before Christine's remains were found, one of Jill's closest friends, 34-year-old Lorette Revere, was found murdered in her home. She had been strangled and stabbed to death. Lorette had three children and was in the process of packing up her house to move back to the Caribbean where she was originally from. Her children had even slept over at Jill and Nathaniel's house just a few weeks prior to her murder. Nathaniel refused to let Jill go to the funeral. Ten days later, 23-year-old and new mother Angelina Hopkins and 20-year-old Brenda Whiteside, who were cousins, had agreed to meet Nathaniel at the Blue Note Tavern in Poughkeepsie. They were last seen by Angelina's sister with Nathaniel and another man leaving the bar that night. Their bodies were found in an abandoned farmhouse in August on the same day as Christine's. They had been beaten and stabbed. The autopsy showed they both had severe blunt force trauma to the head and the face. Then yet another 10 days later, on July 30th, Nathaniel stabbed 27-year-old Adrian Hunter to death. Her body was found later that same day. He had discarded her remains in a nearly burned down old restaurant. At this point, Angelina's sister and mother, who were not satisfied with the lack of attention her murder was getting, began to investigate themselves. Now, Jill stated in an interview that she noticed a couple of pretty substantial cuts on Nathaniel's arm after he had gotten home from playing basketball really late. She asked about them and he said he got them while playing, that the game had gotten pretty aggressive. She said that it never occurred to her that they might be scratches from, you know, a violent altercation with one of the missing girls that she had noticed had been on the news. Once the police discovered Adrian's body, they began to piece together the puzzle of the other two women's disappearances, as well as finding Juliana and Laureate's bodies. On July 2nd, three days after his last victim's body was found, Nathaniel went back to the Blue Note bar where Angelina's sister recognized him and she called the police. Jill stated in her ID Discovery interview that the couple were on their way to speak to her daughter's school about abuse allegations, which is different from the timeline presented by most other sources. Maybe it had been found out that she had allowed Nathaniel back into the house with her daughters, or I'm not really sure, but regardless, Jill said that on their way to the school, the police cars came flying in and blocked their vehicle, so they had to stop driving. The police pulled Nathaniel out of the driver's seat of the car and said that he was under arrest under suspicion of the murders of three women and the others that were still at this point, still missing. 
A detective then took Jill by the arm and put her in the back of one of their vehicles to take her to the police station for questioning. The documentary states the detectives questioned Jill and Nathaniel separately for about 24 hours. During this time is when Jill learned that Nathaniel had confessed to murdering a total of six women, including one of her best friends and her niece. She said that she was at first in denial and then complete shock. Nathaniel took detectives out and showed them where the rest of the bodies were, which is how they were found on August 4th, 1992. While they were driving Jill home from her interview at the police station, she states that they took a shortcut on a back road where she actually saw Nathaniel pointing out where bodies were. Now, between you and I, I think the timing of that is a little convenient, but I digress. Once her brother learned that Nathaniel was the one that had killed his daughter, he stopped speaking with his sister. Their relationship is still strained to this day, as is the relationship with her daughters, and it is obvious that Jill cannot forgive herself. Nathaniel pled not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming that when he drank, he heard voices that told him to kill. He said after watching the movie Robocop 2 that he felt compelled to murder. Ultimately, Nathaniel was found guilty and sentenced to 150 years in prison. Jill visited him in prison once to try to confront him, to get him to tell her the truth on some level. And this is when he told her that he was actually innocent, that he had been coerced into his confession. She knew then that he was lying and she promptly left. He said in an interview, quote, All I know is that, while I'm doing it, it's like I enjoy it. It's like it stimulates me or something, and then it seems like a dream, and when it's over, that's when I feel sorry for what I did. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Unquote. Bullshit. To be blunt, he horrifies me. The complete disregard for life is so disturbing to me. He murdered his longtime girlfriend's close friend and her niece. He molested her daughters. He must have truly believed that he was invincible, that he would never get caught even though he committed his horrific crimes to some people that were the closest to him. Just like most skilled predators, he was keen in choosing Jill. She was a young, naive, single mother who could not conceive of this level of evil. I saw a lot of feedback in some forums, all but blaming her for what happened. They called her every name under the sun. They stated that she was stupid for staying with him and that the warning signs were there for a long time before he killed anyone. I think this is unfair to judge her in that manner. How many of us know or have known people who can be quite unpleasant, but we would have never guessed them to be a serial killer? Sure, anyone can boast about how they wouldn't have put up with this or that or would have behaved in this way or whatever. The truth is, no one's mind would take them to the conclusion that they were living their life with such a dangerous murderer. 
But what do you think? Leave me a message on Instagram at serial underscore killing or a comment on the YouTube video. You can visit my website, serialkilling.squarespace.com, where I'm trying to get transcripts uploaded. As you know, I take these very detailed notes, so it's not hard, it's just time-consuming. And thank you so much for listening or watching. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and that blows my mind. Thank you so much, and have a great day.